welcome back to UN50 podcast. Um, hope everybody's been well since we've been away. And we'll just do a, we have a guest with us, uh, Mr. Kerry Watson, uh, who is a retired Prince George County police officer. He's joining us. We had a conversation with Steve Chalmers a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things we talked about was black officers. So uh, we also were going to talk a little bit between he and I as an experience as black officers and what that looks like in this moment and how we actually had to do some stuff and how black folks treated us just simply because we were black and blue. So, but first I just want to just go back around and just reintroduce briefly uh, my co-host, uh, Andrew. How you doing? Good. Um, thank you. It's good to be here. My name is Andrew or Drew. I am BJ's nephew. I'm a student at UNC Greensboro currently studying journalism and I'm just trying to stay alive. <laughs> Harmony? Um, you know, every time we do this, I'm trying to think of like more interesting things that I can say about myself. Um, but I can't really think of anything today, but I am doing fair this morning. For some reason, I guess I didn't realize you, that you could like burn yourself from steam and oh. I burned my knuckles so bad. Oh. And then I went to the chiropractor today and he said that I had like popped one of my ribs out of place. So he popped yeah. it back. <gasps> yeah. So it was, it's honestly been a struggle of a day, but, um, introductions. My name is Harmony. I am the fundraising fellow for the Southeast Conservation and Energy Network. Um, I'm a social worker by profession and also a blogger, a writer, um, and a self-proclaimed radical. A radical. That's exactly right. A passionate radical. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, Carrie, this is actually our first time. Actually, we've talked a couple of times. I've never met you. We uh, kind of met vicariously through my cousin Jolene Ivy, who's very active politically. In fact, her whole family is in that area. So if you would, just take a few minutes and introduce yourself to, to our UN5 audience. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to, to have this discussion with you today. My name is Kerry Watson. I am a retired 20-year Prince George's County police officer. Um, you know, I had the great honor of actually being the police in the same areas upon which I was raised. Um, I ended up, it was a very interesting career, but I had an opportunity to be uh, vice president of the Fraternal Order of Police in Prince George's County. Uh, I had a chance to be senior advisor to the county executive of Prince George's County. And for those of you all that do not know Prince George's County, Maryland, it's a large jurisdiction. It's about a million people. Um, it is right on the eastern border of Washington, D.C. Um, it has, it, it has been known to be called the wealthiest majority minority community in the country. Wow. Um, it's the same area where I was born and raised. And, uh, you know, my, my perspective might be a little bit different because I've worked at the bottom and at least in terms of a jurisdiction like Prince George's County, I've worked at the top. Cool. And when did you join the organization? 1992. It was, uh, it was, we were the first Academy class after the Rodney King rides. Oh, wow. 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 Thank you. Yeah. So uh, before we get started, I mean, we're, you know, Carrie and I are probably going to be talking about some old Poco stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but first of all, I just kind of want to hit on some things that have happened since we since we left uh, have, have come up. And one of the things I wanted to, uh, I think, um, what I want to talk about is, is today, how many of you saw that Amy Cooper, uh, Karen from the Central Park, is going to, yeah. going to be charged with um, false reporting. 
and that's I think they said that's third degree. She could get up to a year uh, as to going to jail, but probably will end up getting. I would assume probably get probation. So anybody got any thoughts on that? No thoughts. Sure, I'll start. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I said good too, but was muted. Absolutely. Yes. Good. Good. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I suspect we're going to discuss today is this idea that officers are responding to calls from people, from humans. And if there are humans that are allowed to make calls under those kinds of circumstances, and they, they, they turn out to be as false as hers, there should be consequences to that action. So, good. <laughs> he sounds like you're a kind of guy, Harmon. He does. <laughs> I was muted, so I was like, wait, can nobody hear me? Because I just said good, like the exact like length of seconds and everything. So, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely uh, echo that sentiment. For me, it was just, it's interesting to see that it's actually gonna happen, um, but, but it's almost like okay she could get up to a year in jail but like the likelihood of it happening because she's an affluent white woman again comes to to rescue her in a way which for me you know is it's just another example of how white privilege can literally be used in every single circumstance even when you're not the victim mm -hmm. yeah but the fact that she's been charged and also i read that the da or the district attorney's office is actually asking people to report and so they, because they're willing to make the charges. So they're, they're trying to set this, I mean, she's being made of an example. Whether she gets, oh, yeah. you know, actual jail time, they're saying you just can't make those kinds of reports. So, I mean, I think that's, I mean, that says something about the office. Drew, you got anything, I mean, any comment on that? I think it's a, similar to what Harmony said. I think it's a step towards, towards progress. I hope that it encourages people not to call the police. Um, I know that a lot of, like, not to say not to call the police, but if you don't need to call the police, then don't call the police. And I've seen on social media there have been, I know, especially in Greensboro, Greensboro, there have been lists and stuff that say, if this happens, call these people instead of calling the police. So I think mm -hmm. it's a helpful step. Um, like you said, um, she had the scapegoat, but hopefully it'll encourage people to find other alternatives if they, the police do not need to be called. And, and I think, Carrie, the, the, th the other thing that we saw was the gentleman that was dancing in the street. Mm -hmm. uh, the... The thing is, I don't know whether you had time to read the article. He he's autistic, and he right. also has some mental health issues. Right. Well, the, I think for me is that when people call, they say the, the officers are racist, but actually it's the white lady that picked up the phone down nine one one. When you really think about, because the officer is responding to the call, and he or she didn't generate that interaction. Does that make sense, Carrie? I mean, I just. <laughs> It, it makes great sense to me. I mean, at, at some point, you know, whether it is the individual that made the phone call or the policies around which the officers who responded felt required to do certain things once they got there, either way, it's a problem and needs to be addressed. Look, you know, I don't know those officers. I have no idea what their background is. Um, one thing that I did admire about their response is at least they can they did their best to communicate with the individual in a calm manner. Now, we might be able to look back or look back at them and, and, and suggest that maybe it wasn't necessary to um, go hands-on quite as quickly as they did. You know, we can discuss that. Right. But, you know, I wrote an article maybe about a month ago now uh, that 
discuss the incentives that exist for police officers to act in a certain way. And I would argue that those officers who were engaged in that call felt required to respond in a certain way based on the policies that exist in their particular police department. And those are the things that we need to look at. Those are the things that we need to address. Exactly. And I don't, like you said, the, the way, I thought the way they interacted uh, with the gentleman and his name was Mr. Watkins. Um, the first thing he, they, they were, he said, I did see you dancing, which wasn't a problem for the officer. And then he also said, he asked him eventually, are you considering harming yourself? Because he did, he wasn't sure whether or not he was actually dealing with a person who was having a mental crisis. And because we don't know that. So I thought the, the initial response was, was good. And then Mr. Watkins began to just kind of bristle against that interaction and then stuff started to, to happen. Any thoughts on that? Did you guys get a chance to watch that video? I did. What do you think? I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, I was thinking, I know a big thing that you taught me and everyone it says about compliance I and mean, how, how simple that, that theory and ideology is, but um, I was kind of questioning the individual's like actions after the fact, like after he was um, detained and stuff, because he didn't seem as if he was complying in like totally. I may be wrong, um, but I don't agree with them the way that it happened at the beginning. I feel like he was minding his business. But, but do you understand though, Drew, that that he they were called to the call, so they had to interact with him, yeah. and the way they approached him, they asked. Because I, I think the first I was kind of saying, look, you know, I was watching you dance. And then he went into his almost CIT thing where are you, are you thinking about harming yourself? Because he was walking in the street, which you really can't do because it's blocking traffic. That, that There is a law against that. So having to make sure he moves over to the side. So I think it, for me, I think they handled it the best they could. And then Mr. Watkins began to, you know, to resist and not be comfortable with the interaction and then it just became a struggle. So what do you think, Harmony? Um, so I didn't watch the video, okay. but it just reminds me of why it's important to have people on those types of scenes that understand like mental health and how to kind of assess those things. Because I can tell you that I've been in situations where people are acting a certain way and based on you know my clinical skills, I can make reasonable assumptions about what's going on and also how to interact with them. Um, it reminds me of this one situation. One time I was driving past Durham Regional. I was just leaving from visiting my dad. And you remember how the old uh, emergency room, there was that really, really long road. Mm -hmm. um, and there was just this man lying in the street. Um, and he had like urinated on himself and like the police are trying to get involved. And I was like, let me just, let me just talk to him. I think I can get him inside. So just by me talking to him, I was able to get him back inside. I think that he was detoxing from a number of different substances, but again, I think it just goes to show how, you know, we need to make sure that we have people that are competent in the skill sets that they need for those specific types of calls. Um, and I just wonder how much different it would have been if there was like a social worker involved that had this clinical knowledge and skill to really make an accurate assessment. Yeah, but how, how do you do that when you don't know who you're dealing with? I mean, because 911 is the first thing they call, so it's no way right. they know they know, they know they don't have any idea this individual is autistic. Right, so, and see, I get that, but I think that there could be like better screenings put in place. Like this man was dancing in the street. You mean to tell me that a nine one one operator couldn't have taken the time to get some more information if said system existed 
to then make sure that who was responding was appropriate. One, so that we can allocate our resources better. Um, and two, so that we're able to assess the situation. Because again, like I understand this idea of compliance, but you are teaching that to people that are able to function on, on a typical level. Mm -hmm. And I think that people that are, you know, atypical or not neurotypical, definitely need to be in the conversation because these are the people and these are the folks that really may not be able to follow directions. Right. So again, for me, it's a whole systems thing of, right. you know, how do we screen these calls better first and foremost, mm -hmm. but then also how do we support these individuals with resources and, and team members that can actually accurately assess right. what's actually going on. Okay. You know, I, I, I actually think Harmony makes a really good point. And yeah you know, not to get off target, but this is part of my concern with this concept of defunding police. Because in <laughs> fact, what we need is a greater investment in training in particular. Uh, in, in part of my background, I was an instructor in advanced officer training in Prince, George, at, in Prince George's County for about six years. And to Harmony's point, what we need to do is invest in people that can, that can actually identify those types of concerns. Um, you know, when you refuse to invest, when you refuse to motivate and incentivize officers to do what in this case would be the right thing, to, to talk to that individual, to recognize that there might be some um, psychological struggle that is occurring, um, training them how to actually speak to those people, speak to the, the individual, in a way that can calm the situation down, that can um, you know, get them the, the services that they need, as opposed to investing less and getting less quality. Exactly, totally agree with that. Yeah, and then also that, that whole defunding thing we talked about, it's about also, you know, we need some more over there to soft services stuff, you know, mental health, substance abuse, because we, you know, we just cannot arrest our way out. I keep saying arrest our way out of homelessness. We just can't do it. We just can't do it. So, what are, go, go ahead, Karen, go ahead. No, no, I was just agreeing with you completely. Okay. I, you know, we, we can't. We can't. It is, it is the wrong, it's the wrong method. It hasn't worked for decades, uh, and, and it will not work in the future. So, what, one of the things I asked, uh, when we talked about Steve about black officers, what I, what, when uh, Mr. Carey did his uh, blog on the medium, he, he really kind of hit, pushed some buttons for me about being a black officer and, you know, just it's bad enough people don't like the povo, but then they even black folks, when they see a black officer, they, they don't even see the uniform. I, I, I was just recently at a meeting with some social justice person and at the end of the meeting, the guy was like, I'm uncomfortable with BJ being in the room. And I'm, and I'm thinking, but I'm here to help. But all he saw was, I'm a retired police officer, not, not even. And so, you know, Kara, I just want you to kind of talk about how that experience was for you to be, you know, be a black officer in your community and how, sure. folks, how folks viewed you. Maybe it'll help to, to tell you a little bit more about my background. So I grew up in a county, again, that I mentioned was majority minority, and I should specifically say minority black, um, has black elected leadership. Um, you know, it is, I went to a high school that was 85% black, and maybe 5% other, I'm excuse mm -hmm. me, 5% white and everything else was other. Um, and I was going to the University of Maryland, which of course is not minority, majority black, but I um, was driving down the Capitol Beltway, which 
just outside of, of Washington, D.C. one day, and I was pulled over. I, was, I think I was 19, maybe 20. And I was pulled over by a Prince George County police officer because my rear vent window had been broken out after someone had broken into my car. Um, they pulled me over on the beltway, and about five officers got out of their cars, guns drawn, gun to my head, uh, asking why I was why I was driving that car as if the car was stolen. Of course, my response was, "I didn't do anything. This is my car. Please, why are you stopping me?" Now, understand, I never wanted to be a police officer growing up. I had no interest in it. I was going to school. My major was microbiology. Woo. I was working in Howard University Hospital. Never had any intention on being a police officer. And I got to tell you, at that time, NWA was very popular, and I knew every word to the song. And, uh, and uh, I sung it loudly. And uh, and you can imagine after that incident that I felt even more kind of grounded in my belief at the time, F the police, I'll keep it clean. But my best friend decided he wanted to be a Prince George's County police officer. And I couldn't understand why. Um, and I was in my junior year of college and I went on a ride along with him so he can show me why. And I gotta tell you, I had a great time. Uh, he was my best, he, he was my best friend. I met a bunch of people that he worked with that I thought were amazing people, human beings that were there doing it for the right reasons. And it changed my life. I decided I wanted to be a police officer. So I applied, got the job, put on the uniform after six months in the academy and walked out into neighborhoods that I was quite familiar with because they were just down the street from where I grew up. Right. And I immediately found out that nobody cared who I was or why I was there. I was immediately the enemy. And as much as I tried to explain to the people I came across, you know, it was like day two or three, I'd already been called Uncle Tom. I'm a 21, 22 year old kid, you know, and I'm called Uncle Tom, even though literally two years before I'd had a gun in my head by the police. Um, and that hurt. You know, you all don't know me, but I'm a pretty sensitive, empathetic person. And that experience was an incredible struggle for me to be the exact same person or maybe the exact same person with a little bit of training <laughs> that I was before. Right. But to be at the time, I'm going to use the term that might sound a little harsh, but betrayed by my own community. I, I still had incredible love that community and it, it puts you in a position where, especially as a 22 year old kid, you're making a decision on who's on your team anymore. And it hurt. And I gotta, I'll be very candid with you. I spent time in my car, my cruiser, crying to myself because I was completely conflicted. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, that was painful for me. Um, and for better or for worse, and I can make an argument that for worse, that once I was betrayed by my own community, my own people, I made a decision. I'm blue now. Right. I'm walking away. I'm just going to, these people got my back. I'm going to work with them. Um, and it's hard. It's a very difficult place for us to be. But look, I'm 49 years old now. A lot more wisdom than I did when I was 22. And I got to tell you, um, what I didn't understand there, 
at that time was that there's a significant amount of history that caused that kind of anger and, and frustration and, and distrust in that community that I'd had literally two years pre previous to that. And that, you know, it requires me and every person that puts on that uniform to give an extra second to understand mm -hmm. that there is history that causes that kind of anger and disgust. Um, but I'm not a fan of giving passes when people have to make their own decision at the same time, right? right? And at the same time, our communities have to acknowledge that there are opportunities and there are that to, to, to make a connection with someone that's walking into the community. Uh, you know, I heard so many times, so many times in my, my life where we got to police our own. We got to take care of our own. But as soon as your own walks in the door, you treat them like you're them. And that, 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 that can't happen. It, 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 I'm not going to sit here and tell you it goes both ways. But for an officer who has compassion, empathy, sensitive, wants to do the right thing, they can only take that for so long. And they have to make a decision and walk away. Or toughen up, do the job the way everybody else does it, because it's not easy. So, so let's just for just a second talk about that whole piece about uh, being blue. You know, you mm -hmm. you like you said because of the how rigorous or you weren't accepted. You you were patrolling your own community, mm -hmm. trying to do the right thing, and then you were like, "Well, I'm I'm just gonna be blue." So, what what was that? I mean, when you made that decision, what did that look like for you? Look, I mean, the reality is, despite what public the public wants to think the overwhelming majority and this is it sounds contrite it sounds cliche but the overwhelming majority of the people that I met on that job were good people that actually wanted to do the right thing but it wears on you it is a hard job to do um you know you were talking earlier about whether police should have been called in I believe it was San Francisco for the uh individual dancing in the street but those are the kind of calls that we get. And I can promise you in the communities that which I was raised in the communities in which I policed, the people that were calling the police were black, black people as well. And we were responding to calls to make them feel comfortable, make them feel safe. Um, you know, and those were dangerous communities where I worked. To suggest that somehow um, my interaction with my community every single day was negative or the people that I worked with, and again, I'm not gonna say 100% of the people I worked with were good, but the majority of them were. Right. Um, it, it is, can you imagine, and, and I think you can, you can imagine being told that no matter what your heart tells you, no matter how much effort you put into doing the right thing, that it doesn't matter. At some point, you either quit or you join the other team, mm -hmm. um, and I don't. I don't want to suggest that either decision was good or bad, as much as I felt at the time it was forced. And I think we all, everyone, has to do better. And that is not to excuse the behavior of any cop that goes over the line, or, God forbid, puts their knee in the neck of a person, you know, we, the, the cops are not out there to provide justice. It's not, not to, to, to give the sentence, 
It's just to protect the public. So I will not excuse the behaviors of officers like we saw up in Minneapolis or in other places throughout the country. But it is a hard job. It is a tough job. And anyone that has never gone on a ride long, couple nights on a busy Friday or Saturday night in a difficult community upon where there's a lot of crime, mm -hmm. I would highly encourage it. And um, quite frankly, don't talk to me until you do. <laughs> you know, because it's hard. It is hard. Um, yeah. And there's people out there that really care. Yeah. It is. It, it's a lot. Any, uh, Harmony, you got anything? Or somebody just said? Um, well, you know, as an empathetic person, I really appreciated that a lot of what you were saying, Carrie, was based on the way that you felt and your truth. Um, and that's the thing about people's truth, right? Like my truth can be completely different from his and they can both be true at the same time. Um, so, you know, I always appreciate when people are vulnerable enough to speak their truth, even if it can make people uncomfortable. Um, as far as what he was saying, though, I did have one question. You said that um, at one point you had to choose, you know, being blue kind of over being black just because you felt like you had to do that. So like, what did that look like for you? And like, did it affect, affect your policing or would you say that it was more of just like a personal decision of who you associated with, who you trusted um, and things of that nature? Because I, I was curious about that comment. Sure, and that's the right question to ask actually. So I would argue that it's more of the latter you know, I, I don't think that I, you know, I was not perfect. I, I, I promise you that I was not perfect. Um, I think that the empathy that I have naturally still existed, mm -hmm. but here's a reality of the job. I saw more dead black men in my career than I can recall. Mm. I'm not sure. I don't think I saw any dead white people in my career other than fellow officers. Wow. Um, and there's something to be said about that. Look, I gladly will put on a Black Lives Matter shirt and support Black Lives and say it specifically. Black Lives do matter. However, to suggest that Black Lives Matter in a vacuum outside of, with the exclusion of only Black lives that are killed by police officers, that's what I have a problem with. I saw a 12-year-old girl murdered, stabbed in the back, dead. I saw a 20-year-old woman shot in her apartment and her two-year-old or one-year-old locked in the bathroom. That is just two of the ones that I can actually remember. Mm. But I can tell you that not a single uh, protest occurred. There was not, as far as I could tell, an angry person just sitting there. Um, and those lives matter. They matter. So why are we not talking about that? Um, it's, it's the data says that it is a remarkably small amount of black people that are killed by police. Unarmed, innocent black people killed by police. And, and, and I think it, it needs to be said that K 
killed by police versus unarmed killed by police versus innocent killed by police are literally three different things because you can be unarmed and be dangerous. You, you can be killed by police and be dangerous. Uh, but, you know, in those circumstances where innocent, unarmed, nonviolent, or people that didn't need to be killed die at the hands of police officers, we need to go after those people that did that with everything that we have as a society. However, we cannot ignore the children and the adults that die every single day, Black people that are dying every single day. Now, I would argue that it's not necessarily solely at the hands of other Black people as opposed to a system that exists to create a, the poverty levels and the, and the systemic racism that exists in this country. Um, there are reasons that we are killing each other, but let's not sit in our houses or our apartments or in our cars suggest that somehow those lives didn't quite matter as much as the one that was killed by a white cop because they do. Let's stop, let's stop ignoring that. All, all black lives matter. All black lives matter. Mm -hmm. I'm just amazed that a lot. They had a question um, about something that you said earlier that would, um, I agree with Harmony and with you too. I'm a very empathetic and sensitive person as well too. So I know personally if I was working in communities who looked at me as if I was different, if I had a uniform on, although we had the same color of, my, of the skin, um, it would form a, a form of apathy if, almost. So like I'm trying to, I would want to ask what devices or things did you use to allow you to stay on the fourth and to keep pushing and have the empathy towards your people who didn't see you as, as you know what I'm saying, didn't see you as who you, you were. Absolutely. If you looked at my career after um, my stint on the street, and so BJ could tell you what on the street actually means, but um, I had a really pretty remarkable career. Um, and I only speak, spent beat time on the street for you know, maybe a year and a half. But then I was a canine handler. And then I was an instructor in training. And then I became vice president of our FOP. And what do all those things have in common? My job is to support, the jobs that I had were to support cops, right? So canine handlers take the calls that regular beat cops just don't have the equipment or the ability to take. Uh, training, uh, when I was teaching, I said to my classes very specifically, my job is to number one, keep you alive. Number one, keep, number two, keep you from being injured. Number three, keep you from getting yourself in trouble. And then obviously as vice president of Toronto Police, my job was to fight for um, officers' pay, officers' benefits, and quite frankly, to protect them from, or protect their rights that are provided to them by the law. Um, so my focus as a servant kind of changed, unfortunately. Um, retrospectively, I wish it hadn't gone, well, look, I'm in a good place, so I'm not complaining about my path, but I wish I had the energy or the wisdom at 23, 24 years old to fight through that pain that I was feeling by being betrayed by my own community. I do. I wish I do. I wish I did. But now that I am in my late 40s, 
um, I do feel like I have the voice and confidence and wisdom to actually speak about what it is that I've experienced. I don't pretend to be an expert at anything, but what I've actually experienced in life. What I, the thing that, that for me, when I was out there on the street, was what kind of like what you're saying, Carrie, is just trying to figure out how to navigate the fact that, you know, I'm a black police officer, but they're still looking at me as just a police officer, that I'm the bad person that's coming and doing something. But I guess from, from my perspective, the way that I felt like what I was trying to do was making sure they understood that I, I saw them where they were wherever that was and then they could also see me so, I, mean, I spent a lot of time in the community I was I was out of the cars I was sitting on porches with old people you know I just really but I think that that's a that was just something that was that was in me anyway if that makes sense that was just my core to be able to do something because I cared about the community I mean we spent a lot of times being in that space and then you know trying to get people to understand I think for me the community policing part it's, you know, like you said, taking care of our own community. So like Harmony and I may live in the same community, right? And then my my son comes home from prison and he's out on the corner doing something. So Harmony might say, uh, Miss BJ, can you tell your, your son to stop selling drugs, right? And then that's that communication in the neighborhood before I have to call law enforcement. That's the kind of community policing that should happen. And then if we do that safe community stuff, then hopefully between Harmony me and my son, I can identify services that will help him do that. But I've done that within the community before I end up calling the police to do those types of things. And I think that's how, I think for me, that would be really good as to how we teach communities to really take care of themselves um, before they end up having to, but that's an education piece. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they, and, but they got to come, somebody's got to figure out how to go to the community and say, okay, BJ, we know your son's on the corner. Uh, but we want to help you navigate and help him do whatever you do. So, so Ms. Harmony can quit calling you at three o'clock saying, you know, your son is disrupting our neighborhood. So figure out how to do that. And, and it's just, it's a, I mean, I remember one time I was in plain clothes. I don't even really remember the meeting. I was talking to this young man and we were having a good conversation. As soon as shook his hand, as soon as I shook his hand, he said, what do you do for a living? And I said, police officer. I mean, he physically recoiled. He physically, and I have never forgotten that. That was, that just, it, it messed me up. It messed me up. Cause I'm like, you don't know me. You, you know, you, you're judging me because I like living indoors and using toilet paper. That's all the reason, it's a job, bro. It's a job, but they, so having to have that kind of feeling from black people in the community. And then let's, let's not even talk about the racism that's inside the police department which is a predominantly male, predominantly white. But as a black female, I had to deal with that being black, female, gay, and then all of a sudden I'm running an agency. So you can't even. I had to get. I had to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So then I go out into the community, and they're like, they still don't like me. It's like, oh, I, you just. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will. I will. Let me. Let me. My my story like that actually. I mean, I have a lot of stories like yours, but I have one particular one after I retired. I went to a uh, home a transitional home for uh, men. Mm. So oh. they, it included kid, uh, children from like 14 to young men under 21. And I was asked by this organization to come and speak to them. So I wanted to talk to them about, you know, I wasn't, I did not grow up poor. I won't even pretend that I grew up poor. I was middle class. Okay. Um, 
but I went to, I, I grew up in an area where there were a mixture of, of low income folks as well. Right. And the thing I went to talk to them about is how the circumstances of their life right now after they've been arrested uh, as, as children, but are going to be sent back into society to be, and, and the potential that they have um, was basically what I was talking to them about. So um, I remember going through my conversation with this group and someone saying, stop, wait, 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 one of the, one of the young men, stop, wait. I said, yep. He said, uh, so you were what? A Prince George's County police? And I said, yep, I'm retired. I've been retired for a few years. And he says, I hate mm -hmm, mm -hmm, cops. Right. Right. I kind of lost the room at that point. Right. Um, it didn't matter who I was or where I came from or why I was coming there to speak to that group. The only thing, and, and I would argue that a lot of the people, a lot of the young men that left that discussion walked away with that MF and cop wow. was trying to talk to me. That's that's hard. You know, I, I listened to your story. Black, female, gay. Who loves you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Who loves you? Who's right. on your team? Right. It, it's it's. But yet your heart is in the right place, and people lose it for the titles that they want to put upon you, want to place upon you. You are a human being that that cares enough to 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 give, even when you don't have to but it gets lost and it's, it's a sad state of what our society is, to be honest with you. And, and again, <laughs> we can, we can talk about what white folks have done for 400 years all day. I'd be happy to let's go. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at some point we've got to support each other right. as well. Yeah. You singing your song, Harmony? Hmm. You sang your song. <laughs> well, you know, you, you said something earlier, BJ, that really resonated with me, which was teaching communities how to police themselves. And it reminds me of this concept of restorative justice, mm -hmm. which doesn't say, you know, necessarily whose fault is it and what is the worst punishment, but how can this be repaired if anything can be done? Um, and so I think that this idea about restorative justice and teaching people how to police their own communities and police, you know, themselves really, it's really in line with the restorative justice that needs to happen between police and community members. Because I hear both of you saying that people have these initial reactions to you once they learn your title. And I think that that is just another example of this generational trauma that black and brown folks really didn't have a name for until recently, but have been dealing with and, you know, having to cope with without having the proper skills. So, you know, I, I definitely hear with you what you guys are saying. And again, that's your truth. I can't say that it's wrong and I don't think that it's wrong. I'm not even sure that I would have handled it differently if I were in your shoes. But the next question for me then becomes how do we start to make these reparations between community and police and vice versa. Um, one of the young men at your event the other week, BJ, said something that was really poignant to me. He said that this isn't good for law enforcement and it's not good for regular citizens. He was referring to the George Floyd thing because then it becomes this issue of who can I trust? Who is going to be on my side? How can I depend upon this when it seems like there's so much unpredictability that surrounds this idea of policing so yeah I would just be interested to hear both of your thoughts on kind of what you think can be done to 
at least start the conversation of having these restorative justice type of uh, conversations with community members. Yeah, I think de definitely. I think that that starts with the community buying into that and then the government supporting that, you know, the tax dollars fall. Because, I mean, everything that we talked about that we did on the last time, you got to follow the dollars. Everybody's talking about defunding. It's going to cost to do what we need to do. It's going to cost to, to increase, you know, folks working in mental health. It's going to cost to have homeless shelters, you know, so you got to figure, figure out. I think everybody, like, diversion programs, those types of things, and getting the community to support those things uh, is, is paramount. And educating them or doing, I was looking at some uh, pro in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, they've got some program called Cahoots. They've been doing it for 30 years. They actually have somebody that goes out and does exactly what the gentleman on in Alameda. They 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 would have been the first responder, you know. And they said it took some time for them to build this relationship with police officers. And now they're they take just as many calls and they go there and they they screen it, like you said. Harmony, they screen the calls and this thing, and they, I think it was a play on words that they were in cahoots with police. And I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what the what, what the acronyms actually stand for, but it, it works. And they're getting other folks are starting to look at them. Now, you know, mind you, they can't be you know you wouldn't have to have cahoot sit down in Prince George or sit down in Durham, but you at least look at what they've got and try to develop that. So yeah, I'm definitely all about the the restorative justice, doing something different. And then the other thing too, I'm not saying that white officers, you know, aren't doing the gold standard. And I think Carrie mentioned, I mean, there are plenty of good white officers, but when you look at the data, they're close to 800,000 law enforcement across this country. 65% of them are white, 12% are black. And so for me that if I'm in a predominantly black community, not that a white guy can't, can't relate to that black person, but there's just something about like Carrie, you would think that because Carrie's from that community, and him being in the community is like, oh yeah, he gets a call. He doesn't, I know so-and-so. So why would you want him in that community? Because he knows you and, and he can build that. And, and so for me, I think it's a good profession. I think there needs to be more black bodies. And I think there needs, I can't train a person on how to be a human being. And so we got to figure out how to do that and then how to put things in place within the system that identifies, I got a problem officer. Uh, and those kind of integrity matrix that people are talking about creating that says, you know what, Sarge, Harmony was really kind of rude to the black guy the other day, and I'm, I'm feeling some kind of way about that. And, and know that that's okay for that officer to say something about Harmony and not feel like there's going to be any kind of retaliation. You, you can't train that. You can let them know that's the philosophy, but you really can't train that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would... I would um... I don't want to go too long on this, but Harmony, I would argue that, um, I, well, let me start off by saying I've been extremely frustrated by the rhetoric that's been going on about what the problem is today. I'm going to say something to challenge you and challenge anyone that's listening, that we are the problem. I'm not talking about police. I'm not talking about Black police. I'm saying we are the problem. We elect officials who say things like clean up the streets, we're going to stamp out crime. This is what they are saying that we vote for. And then they hire a police chief who, who motivates and incentivizes their officers to have negative engagements with the public. You know, whether it's stop and frisk in, 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 well, actually all over the country during a period of time, whether it's pulling people over, whether it's overtime assignments like I was part of when I was on the police department that were takeaway guns, you were just 
pulling cars over, searching them, looking for guns. These are the things that we have encouraged our political, our elected officials and our police chiefs to create policies that tell that 22, 23, 24 year old police officer to go do if they want to get raises, if they want to get promoted, if they want to get transferred to the cool jobs off the street. So people are going to do it. The incentives have to change. Our elected officials and our policymakers and the leadership of police departments need to change the incentives for why officer engage, officers engage with the public in the way that they do. And until that time comes, all the, uh, the punishments in the world that we find for officers that go that are out of line are never going to change. I've heard time and time again, when it comes to the um, death penalty, that it doesn't discourage criminal behavior. Well, why do we think that somehow providing more consequences to police officers that do bad things are going to change the behavior? It's not. It's changing the incentives. It's changing the motivations for which cops engage with the public that's going to change the behavior. And we have responsibility as voters. And if you're not voting, you're definitely the problem. But we have the problem that voters are not putting people in place that want to change and how change how the police department engages with the public. And until that happens, no one is going to see a difference. I'm convinced of it. We've been doing the same thing for 30 years. I marched in a, in a, at University of Maryland protesting the Rodney King beating. And here we are, however many years later, doing the yeah. exact same thing. Yeah, cool. I think that's that's a good one to end on. And, and I want to just, just briefly say, Carrie, about the ride-along. That, is that something that's still, I know, I think Durham has it, and if you're interested, anybody that's listening to here in Durham, that you can call the Durham Police Department, and they, I think they still do uh, ride-alongs. You say you, you kind of sign a waiver, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, I think that's still. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. yeah, you got to sign a waiver to stuff. You know, stuff call me out. <laughs> I was actually interested until you said a waiver, but I want to be able to sue if something happens. <laughs> Guess I'm not going. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the overall majority of police departments invite uh, individuals, most cases yeah. over the age of 18, mm -hmm. to sit in a car and actually spend an evening with law enforcement so they can see what the job looks like firsthand. Yeah. And you know, if you want to call it transparency, I can't imagine a more transparent way yeah. to allow people to make their own decisions and judgments about what the job is. And I would encourage anyone that has the wherewithal to do it. And quite candidly, anybody that has an opinion about this issue at all, I would highly encourage them to do it. And then there's also, I don't know whether you guys have, we have a Citizen Police, police Academy that yes. basically walks through everything that goes on in a police agency. You get a little bit of everything and you get an overview, you get to shoot a gun or, or stuff like that. I mean, um, so yeah, so people are interested, they can definitely contact their local agency. My mom is a graduate of a Citizens Police Academy. Oh, so yes, okay. please, yeah. please do it. Carrie, <laughs> I think we're going to end up. Anything, any last parting words from you? No, I just, I, I, I'm thankful and appreciative that you included me in this conversation. Um, you know, I do pray, literally pray for a day where we get through this and we all figure out how to work together and be a better country and a better community. 
yes. Thank you. And th yeah, we'll probably have you back because I'm sure there's going to be some more stuff going on. I, I love your perspective. I love, you know, the things that you bring to the table. And I've enjoyed the conversation. Again, thank you for doing it. You guys got any parting words? And then I sure. thank you, Mr. Watson, for coming and talking today. You taught me a lot. Truly. Thank you. Harmony, you got anything? Uh, just again, I always respect people speaking their truth, even if it's not, you know, the popular thing. And especially as a black man, I think it's really powerful for you to speak on your truth or even to speak about crying. Like that is such a, a, like a taboo in our community. So I think that it's affirming just for, for black men in general to hear that other black men in typical masculine positions also have emotions. Um, so yeah, definitely, I definitely appreciate that. And it was, I think, just another added complexity to, to the conversation that was beneficial. Cool. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again, Carrie. I really appreciate you joining us. And uh, that's going to be, be it for us this time. Uh, my name is BJ with UN50. Go to my website, UN50.com. Uh, our Facebook page, and I appreciate you guys being here with us. So just stay safe, stay well, and peace. <laughs>